All right, we've got about 15 minutes left for our third segment, so we're going to do quite a mixed bag, I think, starting with what's described as the luckiest find in history, according to Mental Floss magazine. This is the story of how they found the bones of Richard III, which apparently involved equal parts psychic vision and grassroots movement. To quote from the article by Jessica Collins, with some reporting by Ricky Markowitz, Philippa Langley stood in a parking lot near the site of the old Greyfriars Church in Leicester, England. She'd been working on a screenplay about Richard III and was curious to see where the maligned king had been buried nearly 500 years earlier. This was 2004, and what she found was the city of Leicester's social services department. The church had long since been dismantled, and everyone simply accepted that Richard's grave had been lost with it. Evidently, Langley wasn't convinced. She knew that a fellow Richard III enthusiast, John Ashburn Hill, had recently published research suggesting that the English king's body could still be in the ground. Exploring the area that day, the then 43-year-old, who was slim and blonde, wandered into the smaller of the social service department's two parking lots. An unassuming oil-stained stretch of asphalt furthest from the old city walls, and that's when it happened. Said Philippa Langley, I had goosebumps. I just knew I was walking on his grave. The piece said Langley still doesn't know how to explain it. Call it a psychic vision, lucky intuition, or a step through a hole in the space-time continuum. Whatever it was, it was enough to convince her that the remains of Richard III lay in the ground beneath her. If she could unearth them, science could shed some new light on a period of history long masked in myth. But to start digging, Langley needed more than a hunch. The piece notes later in the narrative that Shakespeare's Richard III is one of the most compelling and evil characters in literature. Described as a poisonous bunchback toad who had a withered arm, who killed the king, his brother, his wife, his nephews, and his friends to gain the throne, only to die at the hands of the righteous avenger, Henry VII. Shakespeare, it's noted, was, of course, a storyteller, and since he was employed by the court of Elizabeth I, a direct descendant of Henry VII, he wasn't exactly an unbiased observer. So we all noted these headlines a few months back when they noted that they dug up Richard III, but... How this happened is positively weird. Now, after Richard got uh, offed in the Battle of Bosworth, dying in a cavalry charge led by Henry Tudor, the area of the Plantagenet rule died with him. After that battle, Henry Tudor hastily crowned himself Henry VII and had his predecessor buried in the Greyfriars Church. Later, during Henry VIII's reign, England abandoned Catholicism, as we all know, because the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce, and disbanded monasteries. Greyfriars was demolished. Its treasures were confiscated, and its location, along with the grave of Richard, got forgotten. Under a commission from the BBC, they analyzed the former site of the Greyfriars complex and in 2003 published findings. Referencing the layout of a similar monastic complex, he concluded the location of the church choir where the king would have been buried, would not lie against the old city walls as local archaeologists had long believed. No, the grave would be closer to where the smaller parking lot now stood. And apparently in the wake of Philippa Langley being convinced she was walking on the bones of Richard III and started pounding on doors in the city, the city fathers decided to let her hire an archaeologist and conduct a dig out in that parking lot. 
So it was on the morning of August 25th, 2012, that uh, with an orange mini excavator out there puncturing the asphalt and a documentary crew looking on, well, the lead archaeologist, Richard Buckley, put the odds of finding the grave of, Henry, of Richard III at a million to one. But shortly after lunch, they found a skeleton. <laughs> the team was stunned. The archaeologist carefully packed the bones in a cardboard box, and, and back at the lab at Leicester University, an investigation revealed a sequence of slashes to the skull, indicating it may have been the king wounded in battle, as well as stabs to the buttocks. The grave had been too short for the body, causing the head to thrust upward. There was no trace of a coffin. The spine showed some signs of scoliosis, which is not quite the full Shakespearean hunchback, but a condition that would have rendered one shoulder higher than the other. Analysis of carbon-14 in the bones further supported the claim that these were indeed Richard's bones. The person in question had lived in the 15th century and had eaten a rich man's diet of seafood and meat. Then came the DNA evidence. Mitochondrial DNA is the only kind that goes unchanged from mother to child. It's thus preserved down the female line indefinitely. And it so happened that a descendant of Richard III was still alive in Canada. Michael Ibsen, a Canadian-born cabinet maker and the 17th great-nephew of King Richard, matched the mitochondrial DNA from the bones. It was enough for science to announce in February of 2013 that it was, in fact, the lost king. I found him, Langley said. I was one foot off. Not bad. And you have to admit, this is a pretty screwball story. If they'd found these bones a generation ago, no one could have analyzed mitochondrial DNA. And it turns out that Michael Ibsen, the Canadian-born cabinet maker and nephew of King Richard, had no descendants. So when he goes, so does his line of mitochondrial DNA. Looks like they found these bones at exactly the right time. Anyway, we just love stuff like this. All right, speaking of political villainy, the modern version anyway, I want to note that we caught um, Glenn Greenwald speaking on Al Jazeera a few nights ago. Al Jazeera, by the way, is one hell of a good network. Greenwald has a new book out, No Place to Hide, Edward Snowden, the NSA, and the Surveillance State. In the book, it discusses how Messrs. Snowden and Greenwald were smeared by officialdom, including the mainstream press, that Greenwald argues has shed its watchdog role. Hello. It's been a recurring theme on this program. The Economist, in reviewing the, in the book, notes that Edward Snowden, a high school dropout and computer prodigy, advanced through America's spy agencies, yet became alarmed by the vast surveillance his bosses stated publicly did not take place. Having been rebuffed when he brought up concerns internally and seeing how America mistreated other whistleblowers, Last June, at the age of 29, he gave up his six-figure salary and home in Hawaii to disclose the damning materials. Said Snowden, I don't want to live in a world where everything that I say, everything I do, everyone I talk to, every expression of creativity or love or friendship is recorded. And The Economist does indeed note the level of surveillance is eye-popping. 20 billion phone and email records from people around the world are collected every day under the doctrine of collect it all. Many American companies, as well as other countries, notably Britain, assist the NSA, according to the files. Yet the disclosures to date are mostly about the extreme collection of data, not its misuse. 
The Economist notes that the villain of the book is not just the NSA, but also the mainstream American media, which Mr. Greenwald believes is so chummy with politicians and business people that it no longer holds power to account. To which they added, that was why Mr. Snowden leaked the material to Glenn Greenwald, then an opinionated blogger and a columnist for a left-wing British newspaper, The Guardian, and not, say, The New York Times. You know, we were bagging on Discover Magazine some months ago, but there's a hell of a piece I want to talk about from the June issue about Princeton biologist Bonnie Bassler and what she's discovered about bacteria. I'm afraid we're going to, have to talk about that on next week's program. Well, I was intrigued by the initial piece of the, uh, of the article in Discover that asked Dr. Bassler what got you interested in bacteria. And she replied, I went to UC Davis because I wanted to be a vet. It's a great profession if it's right for you, but it's memorizing the bones and the muscles, and I am terrible at stuff like that. Also, there's a lot of blood and gore involved. We started to dissect these animals. God, ugh. I left the pig and walked outside and puked in the grass. I'm like, okay, I hate this. I just hate this. So I was basically lost. Well, fortunately for us, veterinary science's loss has been bacteriology and medicine's gain. And we're going to talk about that on next week's show. All right, I've got a choice between uh, America's humorist writer, Charles Pierce. We're doing some David Letterman top 10 lists. And you know what? I'm going to give Charlie Pierce his due. He's going to need more than about two or three minutes. So let's end the program with um, some funny stuff, courtesy of the writers for David Letterman, shall we? All right, to choose some assortment of some of our favorite top 10 lists, let's go back to top 10 signs your team won't be going to the Super Bowl. Excerpting from the list, number 10, last year's mascot is this year's quarterback. Number seven, inner ear condition makes it impossible for starting halfbacks to stay between sidelines. Number six, team beaten by local teens in halftime punt, pass, and kick competition. Top 10 signs your team won't be going to the Super Bowl. Well, instead of helmets, they're using halved honeydew melons. Also, they're only giving 109%. And my personal favorite, which was number two in the list, during last quarter, you noticed players leaving early to beat the traffic. All right, here's one we liked. Top 10 surfer pet peeves. Number 10, you catch an amazing wave and realize that your trunks have caught a different wave. Then there's number 8, seniors day at the nude beach. Number 7 among top 10 surfer pet peeves, Starkiss claiming it's too costly to produce surfer-free tuna. And number six, people who act all snooty just because they actually attended some of their high school classes. And you know, they don't hit on everyone. In fact, Mr. Millen asked me if there's any list where all 10 of them were great. I don't think so. In fact, this list has only one item that I think is great, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's top 10 signs you've hired the wrong guy to put in your swimming pool. I can't resist number nine. Shallow end, three feet. Deep end, 600 feet. All right, here's a pretty solid one from David Letterman's writers. Top 10 least popular new car options. Number 10, the rear window fogger. Number 9, pre-filled ashtrays. Number 8, passenger airbag in trunk. 
All right, continuing along with least popular new car options, number seven, drifter in the backseat who says, your door's open. Also, number five, 35 smelly Ringling Brothers clowns. And number four, ceiling fans. All right, let's close with one that hit on seven out of ten that we're going to cite. These are top ten words used least in the Bible. Number ten, Perky. Number nine, fudgelicious. Number eight, my personal favorite, rootin' tootin'. Number six, schweppervescence. Number four, gas guzzling. Number two, boing. And the number one word least used in the Bible, slap happy. All right, that really does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Elizabeth Orpina of the California Aggie. We wish the Aggie the best. We expect to be joined on next week's program by our good pal, Mr. Will Durst, and we're making efforts now to try and bring on political legend Pete McCloskey to talk about some of his efforts down in Half Moon Bay to ensure that Martins Beach still has access for surfers, which is... California state law, despite the efforts of a Silicon Valley mogul that wants to keep the whole place for himself and keep all these people out. We're also renewing our efforts to bring Dr. James Fallon onto the program to talk to us directly about his research in neuroscience. We think that'll be a barn burner. And although I know we've said it before, we have not given up our quest to get Daniel Ellsberg on this program, and I give our odds that uh, better than even we will succeed in the next month or two. I just have to get off my ass and make it happen. We should note in closing, and this is the first time we've closed the show on this, that all of the opinions heard on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Uh, Although we think they certainly should. We expect to have an all-internet show up between now and the time we talk to you next. So we'll see you then, and we'll see you then.